0: Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy? Book of Deuteronomy, chapter seven. I wanna read this real quick. Deuteronomy, chapter seven, Verse, starting at verse six. says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people, who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now therefore, that the Lord your God is God, I'm sorry, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faces those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slagged with one who hates Him, He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and rules that I command you today. In this passage, we see that the the nation of Israel was chosen and set apart as a people of God. amongst all the other nations. And we see here that, that this covenantal love and blessing that God has shown on Israel was not due to them being great or, or righteous or even worthy. In fact, it was in spite of these things. The basis for God choosing Israel was simply because the Lord had decided in eternity past to set his love upon them and redeem them from the hands of their captors, the Egyptians. With this set the precedence of them being set apart. God tells the nation, therefore, therefore obey His commandments to reflect on this separation as He brings them out into the world. They were to be holy, for their Redeemer is holy. Therefore, the grounds for their obedience is not in order to make them a people of God, but because they were already a chosen people of God. Their obedience was to flow from this knowledge. Sadly, as time progressed, Israel Continue to disobey the commands of God and go into idolatry, and they would be judged, and they would repent and turn back. Until 586 BC, the unthinkable happened to the nation of Israel. Judah was sacked, Jerusalem was ransacked, Israel was taken into captivity, and the temple was destroyed just as the Old Testament prophets predicted. But as they predicted as well, for 70 years, they would be in captivity but be returned. When they came back to Israel, they had a, a pious fervency in order to not go into apostasy again, to go into idolatry again. And there arose groups that um, were pious to the Old Testament ways, known as the Hasidim, and from this group, we know of, a, of another group that formed known as the Pharisees. And in order to keep from breaking the commands of God, they, they added extra man-made laws in order to be a, a hedge, if you will, around the laws of God. If the law of God says that you must wash your hands all the way up to your wrists, well, then we will say you have to wash all the way up to your elbows. If it says not to walk more than a, so many feet, we will, we will cut that in half. If you are careful to obey the laws of man, then you will definitely not break the laws of God. I would say that the the motive behind this was was good, but so it developed during the intertestamental time into the first century, Jewish emphasis on orthopraxy, proper behavior and practices, over orthodoxy, right doctrine and belief. The Jewish people had lost the reason as to why they were obeying these commandments. The average first century Jew in the land of Israel had zeal without knowledge, hope without understanding, and religious practice without clear theology. Legalism had set in and was a mindset of a first century Jew. And the covenantal love of the Lord had long been removed as a basis for obedience to God. And you fast forward to the end of the first century, and the pendulum has somewhat swung in a different direction. There had arisen within the church false teachers. Uh, We don't know who the false teachers are uh, during this time, but most likely there were Gnostics who who didn't have an emphasis necessarily on deeds and works, but more so on a a deeper secret knowledge. The, uh, and this is similar to what exists today, but works are exchanged for experiences, and knowledge is exchanged for emotions. The apostle John corrects this type of thinking here in our text by reminding this body of believers of who they are in light of what God has done. This morning we will be examining, examining three aspects in which the Christian may reflect upon when it comes to living out their faith and obedience to God. If you will, please turn with me to the book of 1 John, and we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I think it's fitting that we pray before we get started. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we we humbly come before you, God. I humbly come before you. Oh, Lord, you know my convictions. And it is my prayer that those convictions be shared with your people here today. God, you are faithful. You are great and you are awesome. It is my prayer that it is you, Holy Spirit, that speaks through me that your word will be proclaimed purely and faithfully to your people today for their edification, that you would renew in us and stir within our hearts an adoration and love for you, our great God. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see this morning. Convict of sin, O Lord. And help us, oh God, this morning see Christ all the more in his beauty, in his splendor. God, thank you for this immensely undeserved privilege to present your word to your people this morning. Be with me and be glorified. Receive all the glory and may Christ be exalted. And it is in his name for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul opens in in verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The Apostle John has gone through, so far, uh, warnings concerning false teachers, warnings of not to love the world, um, and... Reminding them of who they are in Christ, and, and right here in pretty much the middle of the epistle, he he comes to a, a point where you can see a, a change. There's a break right here in thought from verses 28 and 29 to verses uh, about two to three, even four. We see that there's an, an abrupt change of thought that the apostle Paul, or sorry, apostle John. Uh, comes to, and he stops dead in his tracks. And what is this thought? It's the contemplation of the love of God, the love of the Father. This here is my first point. The Christian obedience stems from the awesome love of the Father. Uh, this, This in and of itself is a sermon. It's funny because when I first started this sermon, I I didn't know, um, I I was kind of blowing past this part and, and getting to kind of the second part of verse B. But it was, it was, it really struck me how the apostle stops and he contemplates right now and just is in awe. And that's the best way to describe it. That's why I entitled the awesome love of the father. The apostle is in awe right now. The phrase, what kind, is, is one word in the Greek, uh, patopos, and it, it actually translates as what country, but it came to be basically known as, as what sort. And the idea of this is that this is something completely foreign to us, something that we're not used to, something that we don't uh, experience day to day. It's something, uh, it's it's the same word that's used in Matthew 8, 27. After Jesus calmed the storm, Peter says, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is something we've never seen before. This is something we've never experienced before. This is something foreign. And that's the idea that John's saying. He's like, just think about it. Right now, as I'm talking about the love of God, see, behold what kind of love is this that the that our Father has given to us? This word always conveys surprise, wonder, and astonishment. And <clears throat> our text comes just about in the middle of the epistle. Before moving on to further exhortation, the Apostle reminds his readers by what means they have come to be what they are, children of God. We can see here uh, this break in thought, and 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 like I said, Paul, or I keep saying Paul, John. This is uh, this is very fitting for the Apostle John, who referred to himself in his gospel account as the one Jesus loved. This was not a a brag or a um, arrogant statement. Not that Jesus loved the Apostle John more than any of the other apostles, um, <clears throat> but. He was enthralled with the love that Christ had on him that he would be loved by our God. And this is a great reminder as we gather here this morning. We are here today because of the love of God. Amen. This love that has called, it has saved and it has redeemed us. This love does not stop there but but it cleanses us. We who were once separated from God, it brings us into his family. And how often are we in awe of this ourselves? Because it causes the apostle John here to stop dead in his tracks. Do we understand this truth this morning? We could stop there and contemplate the love of God that he calls us Children, his treasured possession, his beloved children, and I felt conviction because I wanted to kind of just get past that and move on to the kind of some deeper stuff. But I missed it at first. We just sang songs about uh, our God, our Father, who has adopted us. This truth. Has it gripped us? Has it caused amazement in our hearts that we are the children of God, me? It is a thing to ponder and it causes, it causes me to be in awe because I know me. Millions of reasons I have given to God to not love me. To not accept me. To condemn me. That God would call a wretch like me. His child is beyond me. There is no greater honor, no greater title, no greater privilege that man can possess than that of child of God. And I think that every believer in this room would agree to that. None of us are going to disagree with that. But how often do we find ourselves seeking satisfaction, fulfillment, and approval uh, approval elsewhere? What an awesome truth that we who are gathered together this morning do so as children of God. That we who rebelled against our gracious, perfect creator and lived lives that was consistent of that rebellion and sought our own ways above his we who are idolaters, blasphemers, haters, and enemies of God should expect nothing from him but to act in judgment, wrath, and eternal condemnation toward us, instead, acts in love toward us. So, to reconcile us to himself, to do so at a great cost, to add to that. It is a truth that should never cease to amaze us, a truth that we should never grow dull of hearing. It strikes me that this holy God who has given every reason to condemn me, every reason to be ashamed of me, is not ashamed to call me his child. And how contrary sometimes do I live that I and we sometimes act ashamed to be called his children. We do this when we are silent. We do this when we don't share the gospel with those who who desperately need it. We do this when we don't share this love of God with others. How sad it is that we can take such a privileged truth for granted. The Apostle John says, and so we are. At the end of that, it says, we are children, and so we are. God calls us children, and we are. These words were left out of the original King James Bible, but appears in most of the uh, most reliable Greek manuscripts. Charles Spurgeon says, uh, refers to these words as a genuine fragment of inspired Scripture, too precious to be lost. And he did a whole sermon on it. We are not merely called children of God. We are children of God. Mm-hmm. It is more than a title that is given to us. We are seen in the eyes of the Father as his beloved children, his treasured possession. The ancient world um, found the love of God, the acceptance of God, um, even, though, even of the pagan gods, something that was really hard to grasp. They, they had no problem embracing the wrath of God or of the gods, but the love of God was something that was something they really couldn't grasp. So when the Apostle John talks about the love of God, that we be called children, it is something that is beyond them, which is the antithesis today, where the love of God is all that is expounded upon, but the wrath of God is left out. Unfortunately, the love of God diminishes when you do not put it on the black backdrop of his righteous wrath. <clears throat> and I got to admit, you know, there's sometimes where I have admitted before in this pulpit that sometimes I struggle with this fact that God loves me. And so often I, I, I to my shame, will admit that I often get a picture of of God just kind of looking down and shaking his head at me, like, ah, this guy. Here we go again. Here comes Cameron repenting. Yeah, only because of my son, Cameron. Go, go. <clears throat> I think of the, the, the priest that Martin Luther would all often go to, repenting of the m- most minuscule sin he says, go, go away. You come back when you really have something to repent of. Not that I'm that pious, but just that I just feel like, I, you know, Lord, I'm so sorry I messed up again. <clears throat> but this is not the picture that is conveyed to us in Scripture of our God toward us, his children. This idea of this holy God loving me and calling me a child is, is something beyond me. That we are children of God is a reality to behold and rejoice in and now. The apostle does not say what great love could be yours. Children of God, you could be called if you do such and such. No, this love has been given and is yours now, O believer. This leaves no room for pride for it is not a love that has been earned by us nor could ever be earned by us. It's not a carrot that is dangled in front of us in order to get us to perform, but rather the driving motive that causes us to live lives of holiness out of appreciation and gratitude. And this recognition is fitting because genuine obedience should always stem from a heart of gratitude. And what great comfort this would have been for a group of believers who were struggling with doubt, doubting their salvation due to these false teachers it is a great comfort for us this morning. And any good parent knows here in this room uh, that how great we love our children, how much we, we care for them, we're concerned for them, we love them, we adore them. And never do we say that we hate our son, or daughter, or because they're no longer mine. And even if we did this, it doesn't change the fact that they still belong to us. Are we greater? Is our love for our children deeper and greater than the love that God has for us? I tell you this morning that those who believe in, that people can come in and out of their faith can lose their salvation believe just that such a love is fickle and not eternal such a love and salvation that is dependent upon me earning the fathers love offers no hope and no guarantee a great comfort is the doctrines of grace the preservation of the saints for the gifts and the calling of god are irrevocable romans 11:29 That God loves us. Now, our children may disobey, they may frustrate us, they may anger us. They may require discipline at times. And even at their worst, do we not still have a love for them? How much greater does the Father love us? Verse 1b, second part of verse 1, it says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It would be understandable for these recipients of this letter of of hearing of the love of God to kind of scoff at this idea. The latter part of the first century was hostile to Christians. The Jews hated them. The the, uh, Greek philosophers thought them stupid and the the Roman Empire, especially the emperor, which was Domitian, was one of the cruelest emperors toward Christians who persecuted them mercilessly. Shouldn't God's beloved children of God be recognized as such? John points out that the world did not recognize God in the work and person of his Son, so would it go that it should not give any such recognition to us. The world's failure, failure to know God is one of John's main themes of his gospel. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, John 16.3. John points. John's point is that the persecution and hatred from the world that they are, the persecution and hatred of the world that they receive is not evidence that they don't know God or His children, but the very evidence is that they are. In this, we identify with Christ, who in Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, and He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. John records in his gospel account, the words of the Lord, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. John 15, 18, he came to his own and his own received him not. Actually, that's John 1, 11. Approval from the world should be a thing feared amongst Christians, not desired. And too often churches go astray, thinking to be uh, relevant to their culture. They put off the, the teachings of God, the commands of God, all for under the, the title of, of fellowship. The light has no fellowship with the darkness. Approval from the world, again, should not be desired amongst the people and children of God. And I tell you, the days are coming and are now here that we will be hated for standing against sin, standing for righteousness, for choosing right over wrong and truth over deception. The child of God cannot approve of the sin in the world that has been put to death in themselves, cannot wink at that which the father hates, and Christianity today is very timid. We don't call sin what it is. We refuse to call things what it is so we don't hurt people's feelings. It's, it's a sad truth. But we can we can take we can take hope. And whatever unpleasantries and hatred await us, we can persevere in this truth, for the love of God is far greater and far more valuable than that of the world. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are children children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As if the privilege of being called a child of God, accepted by God, was not enough, John further encourages his readers by reminding them of the future hope that awaits all believers. John reiterates the fact that being a child of God is a reality now to the believer, but the full glory and benefit of this sonship is yet to be revealed. This revelation will come about when he appears. The he here is, is Christ. It is Christ at His second coming. We know this word mean, uh, This word means to know unquestionably that the the Christian know can know and have confidence in the fact that they are a child of a God of God now, but can also have that same assurity that when He appears, we shall be like Him. It is a fixed hope, a matter of principle. The believer's hope is not without assurance. The text says that we shall be like him. Now, it would be enough this morning just to hear of the love of God, the acceptance of God, the awesome love that makes us children of God. That would be enough. That's enough to cause us to worship and praise him for all eternity. But this love goes further. When he, and it would, have been, it would have been enough to say that when he appears again, we shall bow before him, ever prostrate, worshiping and praising him for all eternity as his servants and slaves. I do not even deserve, I don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. And if the text said that, we would say hallelujah. But it says we shall be like him. This highlights again this great privilege and love that has been given to us. Not only are we forgiven of our rebellion, washed clean of our sin, not condemned to eternal condemnation that we so richly deserve, not only are we reconciled to the Father and called His beloved children, but on top of that, we get to share in His glory and be made like Him. This was the Father's plan from the beginning, inaugurated by the Son, Romans 8, 29. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Such a thing is is too much to fathom. We're in awe of this because we can't fathom this, this great truth. It is unfathomable, but that's the kind of love that we're talking about here. For those of us who have this hope of this future likeness will reveal it by being conformed now. The text, John says, and everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Sorry. Little gift of the valley, coming back to the valley. There is no greater incentive to grow in the likeness now than this future conformity. Dave here is... uh, had some kidneys or two, I think. <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly what the um, process is uh, for candidacy for something like that. But if he needs another ki- kidney and he comes in and lets them know that he's pounding about 30 pack a day of beer and refuses to drink water, well, I don't know if he's necessarily the right candidate for a new kidney. <clears throat> this idea. Those who appreciate the grace and mercy and and the second chance in life demonstrate that appreciation by living a life of that appreciation now. This idea of uh, purifying oneself uh, denotes a, a putting away or an avoidance of that which defiles us. It is a word that is used amongst the high priests before they were to go in the Holy of Holies and how they would purify themselves before they entered in the presence of God. And that's the idea here. And you don't wait until you're in the presence of God. You purify yourself before, realizing that where you are going, who you belong to. The reference here is to a moral and spiritual cleansing. And he adds purify yourself as he is pure. <clears throat> this purification is not based on your standard of purification. On what you have constructed in your mind of what pure is. Nor is it the standard of, of your unbelieving neighbor. Of the struggling Christian next to you. Of myself, of Phil, of, of any of the elders. This purification, this standard is Christ. And how easily we justify our sins by saying, oh, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. How often do we lower the bar to those around us and probably, pridefully think well of ourselves? John, nor am I saying that we must be perfect. And I want to make that very clear this morning. John is not saying you have to be perfect. But what he is saying is that if you belong and you're a child of God, you you should be striving to be more like the one who is. Though it may be an impossibility here in this life, what comfort to know that this love that began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. He goes on, verse 4 This will be our, our second point. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. After contemplating this great love that makes us children of God, John brings back this theme that we discussed in verses 20, that was discussed in verses 20 and 29. The distinguishing marks of a child of God is the practicing of righteousness. This idea will be further developed in verses 7 to 10, but in verse 4 through 8, we will look at our second point. The grounds in which brings about a life of obedience is the atoning work of the Son. The atoning work of the Son. John employs two different words here for disobedience to God. He, says, he calls it sin and lawlessness. Both these words are synonymous with each other and, and often used. Um, Psalms 32.1 fifty-one, three; Romans 4.7 Hebrews 10.17 To practice sin Was to practice lawlessness We get that We understand that now But In this time The word sin here To this group of people Would have been understood as um, Something different than lawlessness <clears throat> John's community would have understood sin As the breaking of God's commandments The moral law But lawlessness might have been better understood as a sin of active or intentional rebellion or refusal of God. The uh, possible reasons for, uh, I'm sorry, lawlessness might have been understood as, as, again, an intentional rejection of God. And living in a life that perpetuated that rejection and rebellion of God whereas sin was just merely me breaking a commandment of God. I know to us it sounds kind of the same thing, and it is the same thing, but to this, first century Jews and, and believers, um, there was, because of these false teachers too, there was a distinction between the two. Uh, these false teachers would agree with John that lawlessness was incompatible with being born of God. What they did not agree on was that sin, defined as transgression of the moral law, was lawlessness. And this most likely stemmed from their belief that all physical matter is corrupted and irredeemable, so therefore it didn't matter what deeds we did in the flesh, for the flesh was of no concern to God. Due to this view, they considered themselves morally without sin or guilt, and it is most likely the reason why in the beginning of this epistle, the Apostle John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, 1 John 1.10. This... Likewise is a the theme of John's Gospel. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Just as a branch produces its fruits because of its being connected to the vine, so it is with the believer who abides in the love of Christ are those who do not practice lawlessness. And John furthers this point point says, you know that he, talking of Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John continues this rebuttal against these false teachers of this heretical teaching of lawlessness and sin, a teaching that would later develop in the 16th century called antinomianism. This was a heresy that rose to prominence in the days of Luther, and he combated it in his writings against the antinomians. This taught that God's grace not only freed one from obligation of the law, but also from obedience to it. Grace, 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 you can sin all you want, it doesn't matter, we're covered. John is not saying that Christians will never sin, um, and that is confirmed in the first chapter when he states, if we we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John's argument here is that the child of God cannot willfully and continuously participate in habitual acts of sin, the very thing that Christ, his supposed Savior, came to do away with. A sinful lifestyle is contrary to the life and ministry of our Lord who takes away sin and is contrary to Christ himself. Take away means to, to lift or to bear, and this is the idea that, that Christ came to bear your sins, to pay the penalty for it. He came and died. How can you now go into the very thing he came and died for to take away? Uh, John is, actually, good, good quote from Spurgeon here. It says, if I had a brother who had been murdered... What would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely, I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend of it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? End quote. <clears throat> a sinful lifestyle is evidence that a person has never seen or known Christ, and that's very uh, evident in, in, God, or in John's wording here. It's not that some knew Christ and by their sins no longer know Him. John says they never knew Him. Those who who make a confession of faith but continue on in the life of habitual sin and rebellion of God, John says, you may have made said a prayer, you may have raised your hand. You may have had a great experience and you may have had all kinds of emotions, but your life will evidence the fruit of true conversion. If you continue on in sin, you have been deceived. They went out that it might be become plain that they're not of us. John says this of the false teachers and and false followers. Don't tell me you know Christ and understand what he has done for you when you continue to live in the very thing that he was condemned for, for us. So-called Christians today not only support sin, but celebrate it. They claim to love Jesus and then identify with his non-judgmental lifestyle. Just up the street here, we have a church that says, Jesus didn't judge and neither do we. All are welcome. Not only is, is that not true, not only did Jesus judge sin, but Jesus came to take on the judgment of the Father for those sins. To embrace sin or to think little of it is to demean what was done on the cross for us. And to treat this cross with contempt. It is these that, the, Paul, that Paul, the Apostle Paul refers to as enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.18. When we contemplate the cross and the precious blood that was spilled for us in order to redeem us, it should bring about a disdain in our hearts for sin. John MacArthur often um, equates You know, in a nutshell, when someone says, I don't know if I'm saved or not, and he just boils it down and says, do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? Because the true believer hates sin. Not certain sins. Not the effects of sin. Sin itself. And we hate it because we know what it does. We know what it costs. Can you say this morning that you hate sin? The question is posed to us this morning, and not to say that that we won't ever commit sin. Again, I really want to stress that. But when we do commit sins, does the words of the Apostle Paul resonate with you? For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but, the, but I do the very thing that I hate. Romans seven fifteen. This is the attitude of a true believer. The attitude that says, this isn't me. God, I hate the sin that's in me. We don't wink at it. It bothers us. It plagues us. This is the attitude of a child of God. He goes on to say in verses 7 through 8, "'Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning.'" The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Little children in John's name for this body of believers. And John gives to them this warning and the exhortation. You cannot identify with he who is righteous when you live unrighteously. And this is a, a basic truth. We understand this. Um, this warning against deception was most likely aimed at these false teachers. But this is, this deception is prevalent with man today. And if I had to... If I had to guess, there are those even in this room this morning who have been deceived. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, these are chilling words that Jesus spoke. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are chilling words. There are going to be many people who will be deceived all the way to death. People who believe wholeheartedly that they are going to enter into God's kingdom of heaven only to be cast out of his presence into an eternal hell. You may say and you may profess the right things. You may check the boxes. You may go to church, you may even read your Bible, but you but are you truly putting your faith in Christ? And has that faith produced good works? James 2:17. Faith without works is what? Dead. Have you truly repented of your sins? Have you truly been born again? Are you a new creation with new desires, born in His likeness? John contrasts those who belong to God with those who belong to the devil. As Jesus stated, "You will know them by their fruits." Matthew seven sixteen. The word "practice" is a is a present tense word, which gives. Uh, which again suggests that this practicing, whether it's righteousness or, or sin, is a habitual practice. It's, a, it's not something that happens from time to time. It is practiced. It's a consistency. It's something that continuously goes. <clears throat> uh, those who have this practice of sin in their lives identify with those who belong to the devil, who has been sinning from the beginning. John here again is contrasted between Christ, who has no sin, and the devil, who could do nothing but sin. Satan's whole existence is that of perpetual sin, and those who belong to him will do likewise. When Adam sinned, he handed over his dominion to Satan, making him the god of this world. Satan then accuses and enslaves those who have have transgressed God's law, and their sinful deeds are a continuation of his work. Ephesians 2, 1-2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. By atoning for the sins through his death on the cross, Christ pays the price for believers, freeing them from this bondage of sin, and will therefore flee from those chains that once held them captive. John here again emphasizes the inconsistency of the works of Christ and those who continue in sin, and yet they think they are children of God. Imagine with me if you would, if, if I or, or someone else, of our leaders of this country said, we want to propose to you that we move ourselves back under the monarchy of the United Kingdom. We, we want to be under the monarchy. Robin might be thrilled. But we want to we go ahead and put ourselves under the monarchy again, under that. And we want to be, you know, uh, enslaved to that. That's, that's what we're going to do. This would be a, a completely at odds with everything our forefathers fought, bled, and died for. To do such a thing and then turn around and say, I love America and I'm a true American would be hypocritical and this is exactly what John is conveying to this body of believers last two verses and our last point no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here we will observe our third and final point, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John continues the distinction of the children of God and the children of the devil. And and just as we take on characteristics of of our parents, of our physical parents, so we take on characteristics of our spiritual parents, whether that be God or the devil. Uh, further reasons as to why those who belong to God cannot live a life of sinning is because God's seed abides in them. Um, scholars differ on what this means. Um, such Augustine, Luther um, believe that seed is referring maybe to the word. Um, those such as Calvin believe that it is referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, I personally think it's a mixture of both. And John here is talking about the children of God whose presence of God now dwells within them. It's the moment, he's talking of our conversion, where the believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that cleanses us through the regeneration power of the rebirth. Titus 3, 5, John 3, 5 through 8. He indwells the believer, Romans 8 through 9. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, 1 Corinthians 6.11. He produces good fruits in us, Galatians 5.22-23. We are new people. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. John's usage of the word children here in the Greek testifies to this very fact. For it is different than that of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul uses the word child in referring to us as children of God, the uh, the Greek word is huios which means um, it has an adoptive um, connotation to it. Uh, it describes with dignity, a status of position, um, and this is a legal status, that is, um, as a child of God. And this is fitting for Paul, who often emphasizes uh, our adoptive state. <clears throat> John's word here for child, techna, stresses one's birth or origin, even one's n- nature. The idea here is to emphasize the fact that you are in Christ and there is a new birth, a new creation that has happened, that has taken place in the life of the believer. And this birth happens at the moment of regeneration. The old man that was once, uh, that was once there has died and the new man now lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is this very thing. This is the very thing that our baptism represents. It is the dying of the old self and being raised together with Christ as a new creation. Just as we cannot expect an animal to behave like a human unless its nature is changed, so we cannot expect a, a sinner to change his nature or to change his ways unless his nature is changed. And John's purpose of using this term coincides with this idea of obedience. And what John is stressing by using this word is that your new birth is of divine origin. It's of divine origin. Your life should reflect this new nature that has taken place in you. Uh, This new birth is in the likeness of God himself. He echoes the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self created after the lightness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the work of regeneration in the believer is a monergistic work. It works by itself. It's the Holy Spirit that moves in us. The work of sanctification, however, is a synergistic work. The Holy Spirit works within the believer to conform you to the image of Christ through the process of sanctification, the process of separation, the process of becoming more holy. This is done through the washing and renewing of the mind by the word of God, Ephesians 5.26, Romans 12.2, and the application of it in your life. <clears throat> Jesus said, sanctify them, O God, in your in truth. Your word is truth, John 17.17. 17. Us men who just returned from the shepherds' conference, uh, have you, do you not return with this, this gusto, this invigoration of, of just wanting to, man, get into those books, read the Word of God, hear more preaching, live out that faith. You get, you get a, a jolt of energy when you go to these things. And yes, the fellowship has to do with it. Maybe it's the nonstop ice cream. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but but it, it really comes down to what, it, what is it? Is that you have been sitting under the washing of the words for two or three days straight. That is what this has come from. The word of God is of the utmost importance in the life of the believer. The longer we go without washing ourselves, the dirtier we get. The dirtier we get, the less we are aware of the dirt that gets on us. You cannot walk in obedience to the word of God when you do not know it. You cannot love the God who is revealed in scripture when you do not know those scriptures. <clears throat> it is antithetical, ant, antithetical for a Christian not to love the word of God. Your love for God and your desires for the things of God grows while your love for sin and the desires of this world diminish. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. My stepdad Dennis here, But if you talk to him, you'll often hear of his conversion story. And he'll often say, you know, I should be the one teaching him these things, but he's teaching me. I should have been the one bringing him into this, but he brought me into this. Not that I brought you in, Lord. <clears throat> I should be, he's teaching me all these things, but, you know, I'm not really, you know, I should be the one teaching him things. But I will tell you this, that the life and work of the Holy Spirit done in this man's life has taught me more of that power than any books I've ever read. So you are teaching me a lot. The power of God in the life of a believer Robert Lincoln writes, It is really the spirit of Christ in a believer that crucifies the world and purges out sin and forms the soul to his likeness. It is impossible to be holy not being in him and being truly in him. It is impossible not to be holy, end quote. John says, for those who have received the love of the Father and now called his children because of the propitiating sacrifice done on their behalf by the Son and now being born again to a newness of life, having the indwelling of the Spirit of God residing in them, for these they cannot continue in the ways they once did in the life that contradicts this new nature, contradicts the reason why Christ came, contradicts their Heavenly Father, that is an impossibility. It is by these things that reveal who we belong to. And this, again, is based stuff here. We, as parents, understand this. When I go somewhere with my boys and we're going into a, maybe a nice restaurant or somebody's house we don't know, I tell them, we're going into this place. There's going to be maybe children running around doing things, but you know how you ought to act. I don't care what they're doing they don't belong to me you do and you two will act accordingly because of who you belong to you are my children we understand this basic truth our children's behavior is a reflection of who they belong to it is a reflection of us their parents And prior to salvation, our behavior bore witness to our standing in the world separated from God. But now our behavior should bear witness to our standing before God in separation from the world. And John ends our text with the words that whoever does not practice righteousness is not not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And this will lead John to the next section of brotherly love. But as Phil said last week, our love for each other reflects Christ. And continuing with the theme of identifying as those who belong to God, Jesus stated, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John thirteen, thirty-five. Just as it is antithetical for a Christian not to love the Word of God, so it is for them not to love the people of God. John started our text with the love of the Father and ends and ends it with how the same love should be characteristic that of his children. When you understand this love, mercy, and grace of God that has been given unto you, you will be compelled to respond to God in love and to the things of God in love and to the people of God in love. This love that has been shown to us will naturally overflow into all these areas. I entitled the sermon, The Grounds for Christian Obedience, but it wasn't until this last week where I was kind of going over my sermon in my head and going through my notes where I realized that, <clears throat> you know, the, the love of the Father, the, the, atoning, the atoning sacrifice uh, of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit, um, these are great motivators for a believer. But are they the grounds for our obedience? You can maybe argue that the power of the Holy Spirit, yes. But I started to think about it and I was like, I don't know if they're the actual grounds for Christian obedience. I'm gonna have to tell Phil that he needs to change the bulletin. I knew better, so I said, I'm just gonna have to, I'm not gonna do that, I'm just gonna have to do some more exegetical work. Um, But I was really struggling with this and I was like, man, I'm just gonna have to say like, "Ah, I messed up on the title. It's more like the motivations for uh, obedience to God. But, Here's something that's just really awesome. When I was thinking of this question, the answer was given to me while reading John chapter 14. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John. Go to chapter 14 there. And looking at verse 15, I found my answer for the grounds of obedience. John says, Just speaking of Jesus, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is the ground for Christian obedience? Their love for Christ. But, turn with me back over to 1 John and looking at um, uh, chapter 4. First John, going back right where we were, chapter four, verse nineteen. John says, We love because he first loved us. The grounds for Christian obedience is their love for Christ. And their love, and the grounds for their love of Christ is God's love for them. I got to keep my title. We love because He first loved us. In closing, this purpose of this book was to warn, exhort, and encourage believers but if you were here today, I ask that you examine yourself this morning. What are your desires? What are your motivations in this life? What is your mind, your heart set upon day to day? If you are here today and you are outside of Christ, then the warning goes further for you and the message should have been of great discouragement. You know who you are. You know that there has never come a time in your life that you have been convicted and broken over your sin. Never a time where you have seen yourself as a lost, depraved <clears throat> sinner, sitting under the wrath of a just and holy God. You have never cried out to God and pleaded for his forgiveness. The greatest act of rebellion against God is a rejection of Jesus Christ. And a life that he does not have lordship over. In fact, this is one of the, uh, the first and genuine marks of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is a life that has been believed and submitted to Christ. Examine yourself this morning. Who does your life reflect you belong to? Again, Robert Langton says, Let us not delude ourselves. If we find the love of sin and of the world works strong in our hearts, that the love of Christ, we are, we are not yet partakers of his redemption. End quote. So I plead with you this morning. Survey yourself. Do not be deluded. Not be deceived. Cast yourselves on the mercies of God that are found in Jesus Christ. And do not leave this place without knowing him. And for us who are in Christ, I hope this message was of an encouragement to you. And you rejoice in the triune work of our God who through his sovereignty calls, purchases, and reveals to us this great salvation done by God, uh, done of God, by God, for God. And if you have conviction in your heart this morning, let me encourage you that that's a good thing. Repent. And have confidence that we if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9 And let us go on to this week, taking with us the call of 1 Peter 1.13-16. 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we do this not in order to obtain the Father's love and acceptance, but because we have already attained it. His love, his acceptance by the by the full atoning sacrifice of the Son to the power of the Holy Spirit which has taken someone like me who was a child of wrath and making, and made me a child of the living God. Oh see and behold what kind of love the Father has given to us.